أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم I begin in the name of Allah, the gracious, the most merciful Brothers, sisters, friends Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh Many of you are aware that my family experienced a great loss yesterday I lost a very dear person in my life, my aunt, who was only 64 years old. I had a great bond with her and loved her sincerely. And to be honest with you, I really wasn't ready to have this live session. However, since this topic is of extreme importance, and since this topic is an important topic, I decided to go ahead with the program. Because if one person is going to be inspired today to become a servant of the religion of Islam, to become a servant of the Holy Quran and the Ahlul Bayt, then that would be the greatest of accomplishments and the greatest gift that indeed I can offer to the soul of my late aunt and the rest of the mu'mineen and mu'minat something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will be pleased with and as you are all aware today we are honored with a special guest that needs no introduction one of the most famous and popular speakers around the world who lectures in Arabic and in English, who has a global audience and a contemporary message with more than 30 years of experience. My dear uncle, Samahat Hujjat al-Islam wal-Muslimin al-Allama, Sayyid Mustafa al-Qazwin, who will be joining us very shortly. Today's topic, as you all know, is the journey into becoming a speaker, a muballigh for the religion of Islam in the West. Something of extreme importance. And inshallah, without further ado, I would like to um, have the Sayyid join this session. We will have a very brief introduction by myself, and then we will open the panel for the discussion and the questions uh, that we have for the Sayyid, we will have the discussion. And inshallah, if time permits, and we do have time, then we will be um, taking your questions, inshallah. May Allah bless you all. And without further ado, I'm just going to go ahead and uh, allow the Sayyid to join this session. While the Sayyid is actually accepting the invitation and joining the session, uh, I would like to tell the brothers and sisters that inshallah, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah Sayyidna. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May Allah bless you 
and I protect you, Sayyid Jawad. And I ask the brothers and sisters to join me in reciting Surat Al-Fatiha for the honorable aunt of Sayyid Jawad who passed away yesterday of heart attack at the age of 65. She's still young and she left four daughters behind her. Her husband, who is a physician, died a few years earlier. May Allah bless their soul and may Allah bless her soul. So please join me in reciting Surah Al-Fatiha for Sayyidah Iman Al-Hujjah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Maliki yawm ad-Din. Iyaka na'abudu wa iyaka nasta'in. Adina as-salat al-mustaqim. As-salat al-ladina al-amta alayhim. Ghayri al-maghubi alayhim. Wala'l-dallin. Rahmatullahi ta'ala alayha. And my condolences to you, Ammu Sayyid Jawad. Thank you. To your mother, to your family. Inshallah, she joined her forefathers in paradise. Inshallah. Inshallah. Allahumma ameen. Thank you for joining us, Sayyidina. May Allah protect you and give you a long life and so that you can continue your service for the religion of Islam, for the Quran, and for the Ahlul Bayt, inshallah. All together, inshallah. Inshallah. Sayyidina, why don't we begin this discussion by stating why is it important? First of all, actually, I would love for you to tell us the difference between a khatib, a speaker, and a alim can also can it also be combined in one personality? Do we have individuals who are ulama, for example, who are fuqaha, or who are extremely well learned in fiqh and usul and tafsir, who are speakers? Is there a difference between a alim and a khatib? And then in a later stage, I would like for you to explain to us the importance of having such personalities in the West today. And third, I'll pause here and I'll have you speak and then we will continue the rest of the very important points that we have in mind. And third, what is the very basic criteria that a person who uh, takes up the pulpit of uh, the Ahlul Bayt or the pulpit of Imam Al-Hussein, as we call it, the member of Imam Al-Hussein, what is the very basic criteria that then, then they would need in terms of knowledge and in terms of piety and akhlaq? So where should I begin first? Please tell us uh, at, at first, why is this so important to us today in the West? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Islam, as we all know, is a universal message that does not stop at any boundaries geographically. It's a religion that the prophet of it said, O Prophet Muhammad, tell mankind that I am a messenger of the Lord to all of you, to the entire mankind. And therefore, this message has to reach all four corners of this globe, this earth. And because the Arabs make only 18% of this religion, Islam is not an Arabic religion, neither a religion intended only for Arabs. It's a, a, a universal, global religion. And because God says in the Quran, We sent every messenger 
with the language of its own people. Therefore, Islam has to reach all the people with every language, every language on earth has to be available for people to understand Islam. So they do not come tomorrow and say to God, oh God, we really didn't understand Islam. We did not understand your message, your book. You didn't send us anyone. There were no scholars, preachers, teachers, mentors to teach us about this religion. Therefore, it is incumbent upon Muslims to learn other languages so they can convey this message of Islam. And since English is a universal language today, language number one, whether we like it or not, therefore, definitely we have to have preachers, speakers, teachers, mentors, refiners in English, in French, in Spanish, in Portuguese, in all languages. It's very important that we don't confine this religion within the borders of Urdu and Arabic and Farsi. We have to get out of this cocoon and, and, and go and reach out to every place on earth. By the way, let me say something. Just two days ago, today is Sunday, on a Friday, a lady called the mosque and she said, I want to convert to Islam. So tell me about Islam. So I was telling her something in brief. Then she said to me, thank you for speaking plainly to me. I understood you. So I said, I, I didn't say anything. I didn't comment. And she, she continued to say that I called another imam before you somewhere, Orange County or say Jawad is smiling. And I could not understand him. I could not understand a bit. Presumably there are imams who have been in this country for so many decades. So not only the language, but the accent is important. The thinking is important. The approach is important. These things are important elements in conveying the message of Islam to mankind. So allow me to actually focus on a very uh, important message. Uh, and I want you to clarify this for us. Uh, there are people, there are many scholars, quote unquote scholars, uh, and speakers that reside in the West, whether it's the United Kingdom, whether it's the United States, Australia, and elsewhere. However, some of them uh, don't speak the language. I mean, some of them would like to speak, whether they, they, you know, they come from Arabic backgrounds, Farsi backgrounds, Urdu backgrounds, Hindi backgrounds, Gujarati backgrounds, whatever they may be, they want to keep uh, promoting this language and they want to make sure that all the programs are also conducted in, this, in, in their own language. That's one. That's one, that's one pillar of, of this question. Number two, some of them do speak English. However, mentally, they don't re really reside in the West. Mentally, they're still, uh, for example, in Afghanistan, in Kabul, in Iraq, in, in Iran. Why is it important that now, today, we have individuals who, like you said, speak the language and also mentally and physically reside in the West and promote the message of Islam in the West? I think there is no harm 
in having some scholars in, our, in America, in Canada, in Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and other places who speak Urdu or Gujarati or Arabic or Farsi. No harm in that. But we must have an adequate number of speakers, able speakers, competent speakers, professional speakers who deliver the message of Islam in the native language of the land. Okay? And also relate to the mentality of the land. Each country each has its own mentality, its own way of thinking. It's not only about language. I've seen scholars who come from other countries. They learned the language in their countries, but they did not learn the mentality because they did not live among the people unless you live among the people. Man qawman sara minhum. When you live with the people, you become one of them because you know everything about them. You know the in, ins and outs about them. You know their habits. You know their style. You know their mood. You know what makes them happy, what makes them angry. You know that manners, the adab, and so on and so forth. And therefore, this is very important. God, whenever sent a messenger to a village, to a country, he says, وَإِلَى ثَمُودَ أَخَاهُمْ صَالِحًا وَإِلَى مَدْيَنَ أَخَاهُمْ شُعَيْبًا أَخَاهُمْ here means someone who lives with them. Someone who knows them, who knows the psyche, the psychology of this community. So he knows how to relate to them. Not just speaking the language. He knows how to approach them. Every country has its own customs and traditions. So this is also important. To, to know the tradition of the people. So you know how to approach them. How to convey the message of Islam to them. Conveying the message of Islam depends on arts, on proficiency, on knowing people's manners. If you do a mistake, then you fail in your mission. And therefore, both of them are pertinent and important. The language itself and the approach, too. I, I recall being on a panel maybe 10 years ago uh, that was speaking, uh, this panel pertained Islam being uh, a religion of peace and tolerance, Islam and the Holy Quran being a religion that promotes peace and nonviolence. And there was another uh, Imam on the panel. When he spoke, he said, look, guys, Abraham is the one that unites all faiths. And out of all the stories of Abraham, he chose to tell the crowd and the audience the story of how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala within the Holy Quran tells us that Ibrahim had to go through this great tribulation of sacrificing his own son. So he told the story in detail of how Ibrahim took his son, he took the knife, he tried to cut his head, the knife wouldn't cut, that Ibrahim was very upset. And I can just see in the eyes of those non-Muslims in the audience, they were listening and they were shocked that, you know, out of all the stories of the Holy Quran, I was shocked myself why a person would choose the story of Abraham having to sacrifice his own son with a knife, which tells me a lot about the different approaches of the member. Uh, would you, you have traveled globally, you have spoken in almost all over the world. Would you be able to tell us how 
speak, engaging with the member, engaging with the audience, even if they are the same. They are Shia Muslims, uh, whether they are in Iraq or they are in LA or they're in, 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 in Karachi or they are in, in New York City. How different would they be and how must you change the message so that you can better speak to the minds of those individuals? I've written a humble work, an American Muslim preacher. And then here down there, I say, the nuances of Islam in the West, nuances of Islam in the West, which means that preaching in the West is different from preaching in the East. Many countries in the East, they enjoy when you speak about mu'jizat, miracles, superstitions, dreams, you know, they relate to you, the dreams, they chant, you know, they send salawats, they get excited, they invite you again and again and again, because they, they survive on this tradition, okay? Tradition of superstitions. For them, Imam Ali has to have muscles. For them, Imam Ali has to have a sword. For them, Imam Ali chops off the, the heads and the hands. This is important for them. Whereas in the, in the West, you don't speak about Imam Ali. I never in 25 years, 27 years here, when I speak about Imam Ali, I don't speak about him being hero in the battlefields. It's difficult. Though it is true, though it is commandable yes. in the Arab culture, in the Farsi culture, in the Indian, Pakistani culture, in the Chinese culture. But maybe in the West, they expect Imam Ali to be a symbol of mercy, symbol mm -hmm. of tolerance, mm -hmm. symbol of love. They speak about mm -hmm. love. The church here always emphasizes mm -hmm. love, 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 forgiveness, love, compassion, humanity. These ideals are important here. And therefore, the discourse and the statements and the presentations and the lectures has to revolve around these subjects that the Westerners relate to, they relate to them. Uh, to, to support what you said earlier, another speaker somewhere in America, a child died, young child, I don't know, two or three years old. So they invited him. And there were some, many non-Muslims in the audience. And that speaker chose to read the lamentation of Ali Abdullah al-Radhi'ah, the baby of Imam Hussein, which is six months old, and how mm -hmm. he was murdered with an arrow by the mm. enemies. And it mm. was so dramatic. And the audience could not take it really because it was a solemn moment, a moment of sadness, tranquility. But this guy with a loud voice, powerful voice, he was dramatizing this, this story most of them were scared, really. You could tell. Mm. They were scared. They were, they were dismayed. Even though that the enemies of Imam Hussein did it, but still, you may not say these things. Or there was a movie about Imam Hussein, which was brought to America, but it failed here. It did not work. Because I said to the producer, I said to him, listen, 80% of your movie is about fighting fighting with sword. It's about a bloodshed. It's about slaying. It's about murdering. It's about a blood. People here don't like these things, really. Maybe it works elsewhere. They, it's acceptable. 
It's a symbol of bravery and victory, but not in the West. Here, you have to, um, uh, 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 principles of mercy and forgiveness and love and care has to be embedded in the movie. So definitely the approach is very fundamental, is very important, and it, it, made, it either leads you into successful, being a successful presenter and a scholar and a speaker, or a failure. Nobody is interested in listening to you. So you have to switch. I say sometimes to my friends, when I go to Iraq, I switch to an Iraqi channel, a Iraqi mode channel when I speak at the shrine of Imam Hussein, But when I am here in America, it's a different channel because it's a different Definitely. audience. Definitely. Sayyidna, uh, again, a very sensitive issue that I want to talk about because we are here to really discuss something uh, that may not be discussed elsewhere. And, and a lot of people are excited about this. Through your travels, through your experiences, do you find that the fact that maybe speakers and scholars and we will differentiate uh, within, right after this, I, I want you to differentiate between those two terms and tell us how they can be one personality at once, uh, if that is possible, in your opinion. Do you feel that the youth, and not, maybe not even the youth anymore, maybe the adults as well, are disheartened with the, uh, what I would call the religious institution? And, and what would be some of the causes and how can we change that? How can we see our masjids uh, filled with youth, enthusiastic people who are there specifically to learn more than just to, you know, maybe hear a, a little ziyara or a marcia and, 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 and meet some people, have some, you know, polo and, 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 and some niyaz and leave. But no, people who are there maybe with a notebook, with, uh, with, with a pen and pencil, and taking notes, how, how is that possible? Do you find this a problem today? And, and if it is, then how can we cure that? Definitely, this is one of the major hurdles that we face in our journey of preaching Islam and teaching Islam to people worldwide. A vast majority of the young generation are disenchanted, not with Islam. I would not say with Islam. I don't go that far. Mm -hmm. But That's with why the I, ambassadors I use the religious Islam. institution. Religious institution, yeah. meaning the institution, but not the religion. Yeah. They are disenchanted with them. Because the Quran says, approach the homes from its appropriate entrances and doors. We don't do this. We don't do this. The discourse, the narrative that we use is old-fashioned, outdated. It's not compatible with modernity, with today's civility, with today's science and technology and development. The youth today are different from the youth yesterday. Most of the young generation here are college-educated. Most of them, maybe 90%. I don't know exactly how many, maybe 90% of them are college educated. When you go to college, the first thing you learn to open up to other ideas. They teach you about every other religion, every other doctrine, every other philosophy. And therefore, you start questioning yourself. When things do not make sense to you, 
you are not going to remain silent, okay? You're going to complain to the board of directors, to the speaker himself, to the institution itself. And if they don't listen to you, if the old generation wanted to keep the status quo, then most of those young people are going to leave. They are going to shop for another place that caters for their intellectual and mental and spiritual needs. And therefore, we see many of these institutions are empty, empty from the young generation. They are empty, whether they are Sunnis or Shias or Indians, even Catholic churches. Because the discourse and the narrative is not updated or upgraded. It's not. It's the same. See this iPhone? This iPhone, every, every, I show the other side of it. Every, every six months we have an update. Every six months we have an update. It has to be the same with, with knowledge, with our presentations, with the content of our lectures. It has to be compatible with science. Religion and science, as Imam al-Sadiq says, religion and science, they go hand in hand. They are compatible. They are not in disagreement. So you have to incorporate science. You have to incorporate surveys. You have to incorporate facts, statistics, good examples and new examples. This is how you attract them. This is how religion makes sense to them. The young generation, if the lecture does not make sense to them, they get out of it. Okay, before we speak of the, uh, the speaker and the person who can take the pulpit, just very briefly, I want you to tell us, now we're going to be speaking about the content, we're going to speak about the person who actually speaks on behalf of Islam and for Islam. But before that, do you think there is also a, an area that we, sh it's not part of our discussion, but I feel is also important, the setting, the setup in a masjid uh, or a Husseiniya or a place that we attend that puts the people into that mindset where it creates a paradigm for them uh, where they come prepared to seek education as if they've gone to a, a college classroom versus sitting on the floor, the bathrooms are dirty, they're not starting on time, the lecture could be half an hour or three hours and a half, um, uh, things drag, the lecture smells more like chutney than anything else. Can you elaborate on your experience of how the centers, the organizers who are listening or will listen later can play a role. Like I said, we're going to be speaking about the speaker and the alam and what have you just momentarily. But can you tell us what the organizers can do in order to be more welcoming to an educated academic audience versus people who are there just to kill time? Absolutely. The environment is very pertinent and is, is very important in attracting the audience. For instance, do we have to sit on the floor? Does the Quran say you must in an Imam Bargah or a mosque or a Husseiniya? You must sit on the floor? Is this part of religion? It's not part of religion. Okay, this is number one. Do you have to, to, to dim the lights all the time? Do you have to not to have a good ventilation? These things, we have to take care of them. These things about your health and the health of the audience. If you don't preserve these tiny little things, you are not going to maintain a healthy audience. People who are educated, people who are healthy, people who take care of their hygiene are not going to come there. The smell has to be beautiful. 
25 years ago, we opened our mosque in Orange County. A guest came over from the East Coast to visit us, and it was the month of Ramadan, the very first Ramadan. And at that time, the mosque was smaller than the current one. So we had a bathroom, and I insisted on putting some fresh flowers in that bathroom. Mm -hmm. To the dismay of many people, they didn't take mm -hmm. it. They said, this is a sraf. Mm -hmm. I said, no, but I like to see the bathroom mm -hmm. clean and fresh. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That guest came. Before he entered the lecture room, he went, he used the bathroom. Mm -hmm. Then he came. I finished my speech. He said, can I speak? Can I say a couple of words? Since he was honorable, I said, definitely. Definitely you will. Mm -hmm. yeah, and he was an intellectual person. Mm -hmm. The first sentence he said in his speech, he said, guys, I congratulate you. You know why I'm congratulating you? Not for opening the mosque, but for having beautiful bathroom and a clean bathroom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It makes a huge difference. Yeah. It makes a huge difference. Why when I go to a church, I go to the bathroom, it's a crystal clean, neat, well-maintained. Or the hall, all the hallways, all the rooms. Why, when I am about to enter any Islamic center, not all, not all, to be just, I cannot say, I cannot generalize, most of them. The first thing you smell, the, 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 the biryani. Oh. That is the first thing that welcomes you at the entrance, at the very entrance. Why the hall is not clean? Why the bathrooms are, are uh, you know, they stinks and they are. So these things are important. The environment is important. The stage, even the stage, even the member. Some of the manabar, they insist on putting 15 alam. And they think that this is the blessings and this is. And, and the member looks weird, believe me. It looks weird. Yeah. Maybe, maybe someone from that area, he would enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. But if you, are, if you invite an outsider, he will be shocked. What is this? What is this? Most of these members, the style that they create, is Hindu-based. Hindu it's not even Islamic. Yeah. Is the mosque of the Prophet like that? Is the member of the Prophet in Medina has 500 alams around it, surrounding it? Uh, we I remember I shared the debate. We respect Abu al-Fadl yeah. Abbas and Imam Hussein and all the imams. But you do not have to emulate the Hindus. Let's make it Say very that, clean, that, very the, beautiful. The, the member of Imam Hussein in the shrine of Imam Hussein, you have lectured on that member. That, then that member is just decorated by words from the Quran, by ayat from the Quran. It, it, it really has nothing else to it. I remember I shared a story with you several years ago when I was actually lecturing in a, in a community. I'm not going to say where. And, you know, there is a tradition... And I'll just say the story and move on with, uh, with the next uh, part of our discussion. But there was a, a, a person who was from, the, from another community who had just happened to come to that community because I was lecturing there. And he wasn't really uh, practicing, hasn't gone to so many majalis. And I remember, uh, you know, it was the 21st of Ramadan. So right at the end of my lecture, they took out the taboot and, uh, and, and was going around. And this person really thought that someone just died and, and, and he's being carried around and he was so shocked. And it took me so long after the lecture to actually speak, uh, explain to him that this was just a practice to remind us 
so that we can reflect on what happened on the 21st of Ramadan when Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen was buried. But I felt, really, I felt that it took away the entire experience that he had and it was kind of uh, stuck in his head for a very long time. So that message goes to the organizers, it goes to the attendants, it goes, it goes to our brothers and sisters. Now, let's speak of what we actually wanted to discuss this uh, today, and, and it's very important. Uh, some people are already taking the minbar, they're already giving lectures. Some people may be interested in doing so. So they want to know what is the criteria. Uh, can you tell us the, the difference, and you can choose whether to go first with explaining this part or the, the other, the latter. Uh, one is, what is the basic criteria for a person before they start lecturing uh, and taking the pulpit, number one. Number two, what is the difference between a khatib and a alim? And three, can those person, can, can, can the, the a khatib, do we have cases where a khatib, a alim, a faqih, maybe even a marja' uh, is also a lecturer for Imam Hussein or a khatib? Let me begin with the third question, then the second, then the first. The third one, Many numerous maraja' scholars, theologians, philosophers, jurists, commentators, exegists of the Qur'an were at the same time speakers during Muharram. In fact, most of the scholars, they turn into speakers during specific seasons and uh, during Ramadan and the month of Muharram because this is their duty. They have to convey the message. They have to awaken the masses. So this is number one. Number two, the difference between a speaker or a preacher on the one hand and a teacher and a mentor on the second hand. Vast different. A speaker is someone who can memorize a passage or can hear someone else and copies exactly what that person says. And then he can come and repeat and rehearse what he read or what he heard without even understanding it. And he could be very eloquent, sensational, very charismatic, very powerful, very moving, very touching. But he is a speaker. He is like a television anchor, a presenter on television. He does not write the news. He does not write the analysis. Someone else is writing for him. His job is just to deliver. Okay? So this is a speaker. This is, this is uh, uh, an orator, if you will. Yeah. But if you come to a teacher enter, it's completely something different. Completely something different. Because he begins refining himself. First of all, he loves this. He loves what he's doing because it is not a means for living for him. It's not a business. It's not even a hobby. It is wadifa. It is wadifa. No, it is, it is a responsibility. It's a responsibility for him. It's a responsibility for him to deliver because he studied and now he wants to share his knowledge. And therefore, he practices what he preaches. 
He does a practice. And the knowledge that he's giving, he didn't get it only from someone. He's not copy-pasting. He digested that knowledge. He enjoyed it. He practiced it. Then he's sharing it. Man ta'allama, the Prophet, peace be upon him, says, Man ta'allama wa'amila wa'allama lillah. Man ta'allama, whoever learns first. And then practices what he learned. He does a practice first. He applies this knowledge to himself. And then he shares it with other with others. That person is going to be named a great person in the kingdom of God. So a mentor is different. A mentor is someone that really touches the hearts and he's able to change the societies and the communities. He's not an entertainer. Nowadays, this profession of speaking, Majalis and others, it's turned into in the West by some people as entertainment, means of entertainment, means of laughter. No, no problem. No problem. You can incorporate some jokes. It's okay. Don't get me wrong. But you are not an entertainer. You are an educator. You are mm -hmm. a trainer. You are a mm -hmm. refiner. Mm -hmm. Your job is to refine. And by mm -hmm. the way, you may say a joke. It's okay. It's okay. A moment of, you know, light moment, a happy moment. It's okay. But not entertainment. Entertainment is something else. Because in entertainment, you might mix the truth with falsehood. The lies, you might bring some lies and mix them with the truth. But when you refine, you are careful. When you are a refiner, a trainer, a refiner, muaddib, muaddib, muallim, murabbi, murabbi. In Arabic, they call it murabbi. Murabbi is the one that he went through this himself. He went through this experience. He was able to transform himself. He applied the self-transformation to himself first, and then he went to the audience. And that person is the successful one. Now we come to the first question. Yeah. Number one, before anyone begins this journey, which is a very arduous, very difficult, very tumultuous, it's not an easy journey. Believe me, it's not an easy journey. It's not. It's a big responsibility. Imam Ali says, Ya ayyuhal rajulul mu'allimu ghayrahu halla li nafsika kana dat ta'alim. If you are attending to teach others, teach yourself first. Tasifu al-dawa' wa anta awla bid-dawa' wa tu'aliju al-marda wa anta saqimu. You are prescribing medicine for others while you need that medicine the most. Work on yourself first before you go to others. وَمُؤَدِّبُ نَفْسِهِ أَحَقُّ بِالْإِحْتِرَامِ مِنْ مُؤَدِّبِ غَيْرِهِ Imam Ali says the one who, who teaches himself self-control and discipline himself and, and train himself and refines himself, he is more deserving of respect of the other who is refining others because he was able to pass this difficult task. It's easy for me to speak. Very easy. Doesn't need anything. But it is not easy for me to practice what I'm speaking, what I'm preaching. It's not easy. It's very difficult. It's very difficult. So number one, number one is the moral requirements. And the moral requirements, 
is as what God says. Why do you preach what you don't, yourself you don't, you don't practice. You don't practice it. And then the second is that we believe in that concept. If you don't believe in it, you are not going to be able to defend it. When I speak about the prayers, if I don't believe in the power of the prayers, if I don't wake up myself and force myself for the Fajr prayers, I wouldn't be able to convey the concept of the prayers to others. I would not succeed in this mission. I remember someone some years ago in one of the states, I was told, that in his speeches, he asks the young generation to perform Salat al-Layl, but he himself does not perform Salat al-Fajr. It doesn't work like that. We have to be genuine. We have to be genuine. We have to practice what we preach. If I know I can't do it, then I should not preach it. That's it. Put it aside. I go to another subject. I choose another subject. I don't have to speak about something that I, I myself cannot handle it. Then... We come to honesty. A teacher, a mentor, muallim, khatib, has to be honest in his statements, in his dealings with people. If he's not honest, people are not going to listen to him. People are not going to respect him. He or she should not turn the majlis into a commercial enterprise. It's not. He should have ikhlas and dedication. Money will come. God will send him. God will send money to those who are not, not only preachers, even the students. Even the students. Imam al-Sadiq, this is the hadith of Imam al-Sadiq, that God guaranteed the livelihood of those students who study the Sharia religion in order for them to convey it to others. God will take care of them. And definitely the Institutions have to respect them, have to respect their efforts that they put into this, the time that they put into preparing their lectures. They have to respect because sometimes they invite a musician to their daughter's wedding and they pay him $5,000, easy, easy, $5,000 for one hour session. But it is difficult for them to pay a scholar $500. It's difficult for them. This is another disease that some com communities suffer from. That when it comes to religion, they have the least respect for religion and religious leaders. But when it comes to others, they respect them. The second important Third. characteristics is the intellectual one. The khatib or the speaker has to be has to enjoy a professional scholarship, not mediocre. Because people are listening to this person. People are learning from him. People are going to ask him questions. If he's not versed, if he did not spend good time in the seminary, in a college, at a university, with teachers, with mentors, to study religion very well, then he would be unable to answer or he 
as we see it nowadays with some of the young generation, he would give the wrong answers. He will create more confusion. There are some speakers nowadays in Shia circles and Sunni circles who are creating uh, more confusion, more confusion in the minds of people than solving them. More confusion, more misunderstanding. They don't know how to present. Many of them, many, many of them in the East and the West, we suffer from those mediocre, I don't call them scholars, speakers who didn't spend good time in studying. Within a few days, he wants to jump upon the pulpit because he's powerful and because some naive people are enjoying, you know, his charismatic character and his speech, and then they elevate him to the ranks of Allah. So Sayyid Ali Sistani, the greatest jurist, the greatest mujtahid and marja, is equal to this man. They mention the both names in one line. This is a problem. Sayyidna, I, 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 I'm so sorry to interrupt you because we, we, our time is limited. I want to talk about this. It's very important to us. I, I personally remember, uh, I would say 10 years ago, I was in the United Kingdom. Um, and there was a panel. On this panel, there was many, uh, you know, it was a conference. So there were many speakers. Amongst them, I was one of the uh, speakers who spoke before the question and answer panel. However, towards the end and after my discussion, a very respected scholar, indeed a mujtahid, he arrived to the hall and he gave a presentation. And there's no doubt that he's a, a mujtahid. He was one of the students of uh, uh, Sayyid al-Khoi and, and others, without having to mention his name. And then they asked us to join a panel of Q&A. So I told the organizers, I told them that, and this was 10 years ago, I told them I don't find myself in place to sit on the same panel as a mujtahid, faqih. So I would recommend that he takes the panel by himself. It doesn't make sense for me to sit on a panel with somebody who is much senior than me, though I was coming out of the house. And then there was a young man who has never probably spent more than uh, two nights in Najaf and two nights in Qom when he goes to Ziyara trips. And they told him, okay, khalas, then we're going to keep this respected scholar, this mujtahid, this ayatollah on the panel, and the rest can sit and listen. And he was very upset. He, he started shouting and what have you. I believe it's because he misunderstood his place in, in the formula. So, uh, for example, what changed my mind about going to the Hawza was uh, when I first visited the Hawza um, as a visitor. I mean, I didn't want to, I, I had not made up my mind to stay. And I vividly remember this. Uh, I, I went and I was just walking and I saw that Ayatollah Sheikh Wahid Khurasani, who was at that time, he was at least 90 years old, uh, was a very a hot day. And he, he, you know, he's very old. He can't walk. His son was, his, both his sons were carrying him. He came out of a very beat up old car. He went and he sat on the pulpit and he taught and he, he went back home. And I saw that it is the hausa that makes you humble. It makes you uh, appreciate real scholars. When you see the scholar, this alim, this mujtahid, this faqih, 
where there is at least five, six hundred, sometimes two thousand mujtahids attending his lecture, be so humble, you find yourself less than a drop in that ocean. So my specific question to you was, what is the basic intellectual seminarian criteria for somebody before they call themselves a lecturer, before I can invite him as a community, before I can give him a podium and a pulpit, or even if somebody called me and said, you know what, Sayyid Jawad, why don't you come and lecture for us? I then ask myself, am I qualified? And if I'm not qualified, I say, I'm sorry, I'm not qualified. I may be uh, qualified years from now. What is that criteria that I wanted to, I wanted you to shed some light on? The Holy Quran says, Falawla nafara in Surah At-Tawbah, I believe verse Verse 122. Yeah. Falawla min Why not a contingency from every society comes forth or goes forth to study an in-depth studying not just to learn and we have to pause here what does it mean doesn't mean superficial study doesn't mean that you go a couple of days it means that you are well versed and very competent when you study Islam and you study it in a very comprehensive and in-depth way that you understand it very well, you don't have any doubts in your mind, and then when you deliver it, you are able to deliver it very well in a very professional way. So the minimum requirement is that a person goes, in my opinion, nowadays, nowadays, with this technology, at least for five years, minimum five years. And then after that, he might be qualified to be a speaker, not a mujtahid. Of course. Not an imam per se where he gives fatwa, but a speaker, at least minimum five years. Not only to study, but as you mentioned rightly, to familiarize himself with the atmosphere of the Hausa, which is based on humbleness, on humility, sometimes on poverty too, on deprivation. إِنِّي جَعَلْتُ الْعِلْمَ فِي الْجُوعِ وَالْغُرْبَةِ وَالنَّاسُ يَطْلِبُونَهُ فِي الْأَهْلِ وَالشِّبَعِ The Hadith Al-Qudsi. God says, I placed knowledge, the fruit of knowledge, in two things. In loneliness, loneliness, being away from your family, being away from your, uh, your mother and the good food that she cooks for you and the spoilage that you enjoy, and in hunger too. Because when we keep eating and eating, eating here is, is, a, is an example of, of enjoyment, having fun, having good time. If we want to have good time, we study one day and then we play six days, it, 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 it's not going to work. Or we go to the house one month and we come here 11 months, it's not going to work. We have, it requires dedication, dedication. And it requires to meet and sit and study under the supervision and the care 
of al-ulama al-rabbaniyin the spiritual scholars not only studying fiqh and usul beside jurisprudence the principles of jurisprudence the exegesis of the quran and literature and this and that studying akhlaq too it requires that you have at least one or two teachers of akhlaq mentors imam ali says the prophet was my muallim yarfa'u li fi kulli yawmin min akhlaqihi 'alama every single day he would introduce me to a new concept the prophet used to do this for imam ali alayhi salam he had a mentor we need a mentor we need a mentor we cannot just go on and 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 ascend the pulpit stand before the podium and we have self confidence and loud voice and then we think that we know everything we need a mentor and i'm going to tell us what is right and what is wrong he's going to correct us we have to go through this a process of correction every single day so this is the minimum requirement that one should really spend 5 years minimum and study extensively spends most of his times most of his times maybe 18 hours a day studying doing nothing but studying then he may be come out and be qualified to give lectures and speeches sayyidna we have just less than 4 minutes left i would like for you to tell us uh two things one uh, let's start with this why don't you tell us uh who was your mentor who was your your model in life who inspired you if you had a teacher that really had a, a great impact on your life could you please tell us that and then lastly how can you after all those years of experience and very and maybe less than 2 minutes inspire the brothers and and sisters by the way i wanted us to take the question on why is it that you know there are only men ulama and men speakers inspire the brothers and sisters to take up this journey uh, of serving uh, the religion of islam and the madhab of ahlul bayt i had many uh, mentors and teachers since the age of 15 when i used to go to full time school and then in the afternoon i would go to the religious school many mentors and teachers i would say all of them were good and excellent but the most outstanding one among them i would say my father because only a scholar he was a man of god truly a man of god very pious extremely pious the piety that i saw in my father i can say with confidence i rarely saw that type of piety and righteousness and fear of god in in my father i rarely saw that in others rarely a man who was very honest a man who really dedicated himself from the age of 12 to serve ahlul bayt a man who dunya did not change him when my father was was building the hospital which took 10 years to build in karbala imam al hujja hospital at some point i enter his room and there is in the drawers about 5 million cash dollars 5 million dollars cash but you yep. come to his address it's a torn out address the dress yep. that he wears the dishtasha sometimes i tell him i'm embarrassed of this dress 
go and change it. I'll bring him a new one yeah. and I force him to wear I force him to wear a new one. Yeah. This was his piety. Dunya did not change him. And, He's and, the and same just, man. Just, just let me My father add 10 is the seconds. person, yeah, as, a person as a person. Whether he has one single dollar in his property, in his room, or $5 million, he's the same person. He's yeah. the same person. Yes, please, yeah. go ahead. I remember this scenario, exact scenario that you have just given us. I actually, uh, he wanted to come to Iran while I was in Qom, and he, he obviously visits Imam al-Rada every year. Unfortunately, it's not going to happen this year. But just a very, 10 seconds, he told me he cannot afford the flight expense which is, you know, between Iraq and Iran is less than $120 round trip. Now, how can a man with, like you said, you know, with $5 million in his room not be able to say, you know, I'm going to take $120 for myself to fly to a neighboring country, but he chose to actually drive. And, you know, a man 90 years old drives this distance so I definitely agree he's not just a mentor of yourself, but I would say hundreds, if not thousands of scholars around the world. We have one minute left. How, Sayyidina, how can you inspire the audience to take this path of serving the Qur'an, the religion of Islam, and the holy household of the Ahlul Bayt? This profession of preaching Islam and teaching Islam is the most sacred and the most beautiful profession. I enjoy every minute of it. But yet, at the same time, it's the most dangerous too. If we don't know how to handle it. Or if God forbids, if we mishandle it. Or if we have different intentions. If our intention is not God, is not ikhlas, is not earnestness, is not dedication for God and Ahlul Bayt. We have other worldly intentions. Then it becomes the most toxic, the most poisonous, and the most dangerous profession. So it depends on your intention. If those who really want to follow this path, they are most welcome, they will enjoy it, provided that they stick to the principles, Islamic and Ahlul Bayt principles. If they shift away, it will be the most dangerous and the most ugly. It will turn into the most ugly profession and they will lose both lives this one and the hereafter so it all depends on the intention are you willing to have that intention of ikhlas working only for god working to enlighten mankind to save mankind working for the benefit of ma mankind not self-serving not yourself putting the audience putting the community putting a nurse